Well, happy Thanksgiving weekend to you all. It's great to be with you. Uh, we're especially rejoicing because uh, our son Robert from Iowa is visiting with us uh, this weekend, and that brings us great joy. Uh, we have all three of our younger sons uh, with us uh, today. Uh, they were crowded across the backseat of the car on the drive up here, and they were reminiscing about the funny stories of traveling long distances early Sunday mornings to uh, visit at various assemblies, uh, sometimes uh, even wearing their pajamas until we got close, and then we would change them. Uh, driving from Dubuque into Chicago was a three-hour drive, and so we would pull them out of their cribs and put them in their car seats and drive and then wake them up a little uh, closer to a, a normal hour. So uh, I told uh, Robbie that uh, I don't think you've ever been to Claremont uh, Bible Chapel, but being here in this room, he goes, I know I have been here before. And I'm going like, I've never brought you here before. And he goes, I've been here. And it turns out there was one weekend where he thought I was taking him to the beach. I brought him to Bruce Merritt's funeral that was held uh, here at the chapel. We got the beach in that weekend too, but we, we uh, actually were in this building. So he went to the back bulletin board looking for a picture of the family. Very often, uh, we have very old pictures on bulletin boards spread around the country with uh, little kids. Uh, now they're all grown up, and it's, it's fun to see uh, what the Lord has been doing in our lives and in our families. On Thanksgiving weekend, uh, we normally are thinking about uh, why we should be thankful, and often uh, many of us have said to ourselves, uh, well, it's just normal. I don't have to be exceptionally uh, thankful. Uh, but on the news uh, this weekend, I was particularly intrigued by the story of Kate McClure. She works for the New Jersey Transit Authority and was traveling down I-95 on the East Coast and began to run out of gas. Uh, she pulled off onto the exit ramp. It was midnight. She got out of her car thinking, like, well, I'll walk to a, a gas station to get gas. And a homeless man approached her. His name is Johnny Bobbitt. Uh, he's an ex-Marine, and that was his exit ramp. He was a panhandler that would hang at the exit ramp to uh, earn money, in a sense. And he told her, no, get back in your car, lock the doors, I'll go get you gas. And so he spent the last $20 he had, the $20 he'd made that day in panhandling, and bought her $20 of gas, put it in her car, sent her on her way. And when she got back to her own place, she told her boyfriend about it, uh, who insisted that he go back to that exit and find that man. And he kept repeating it for the last couple months, going back to the exit, uh, bringing him gift cards, cash, toiletries. And then they decided, like, we need to do something more permanent for this man. So they, they established a GoFundMe page and set it up for $10,000 trying to get him off the streets and get him his own place to live. Uh, today, it is at $360,000. In fact, they closed it down, getting embarrassed, thinking, like, we can't give this much money to one person. Uh, we should be raising for the homeless generally. Uh, and the people who were trying to give were so offended that they closed it and complained so vehemently, they've reopened it again, saying, the person we want to give to is Johnny Bobbitt. And what's amazing 
about the story and the whole concept of being grateful uh, is the desire to help people, the desire to make an impact in someone else's life, the desire to have a meaning for why you're doing what you're doing. And so I would like to take us to Luke chapter 7 and the story of a famous dinner party in which a woman who is uninvited sneaks her way in to see Jesus. It comes in the context of Jesus being frustrated with the pride of the Pharisees. They had pushed John the Baptist away, uh, believing him to be too wild and ascetic, and they rejected uh, his prophesying of the coming Messiah, and they rejected Jesus uh, because he was welcoming of such people as tax collectors and sinners. He'd accept a dinner invitation from anyone. And they accused him of eating and drinking and being indiscriminate. The Pharisees were aloof. They were separatists. They wouldn't have anything to do with people that actually were in need. But Simon, one of the Pharisees, uh, seemingly a collector of celebrities, decided to host Jesus in his home, apparently to invite some of his friends over, and it seems as if he wanted to interview Jesus and in some way make him look bad in front of his friends. Invite a famous person over, embarrass him in front of your friends. But the tables are turned on him when a person who was not invited and not expected to be at the dinner party showed up. It was fairly easy to do in those times. Uh, the dinner party would be in a large room in which servants would come in and serve, uh, the table would be low, much the height of our coffee tables. They would recline uh, on uh, pillows or small couches on their left side, left hip, left elbow, with their feet out away from the table. Uh, much like we might do at a Thanksgiving dinner when we want to leave the children's table and go to the adult table to hear the adult conversation, uh, people would gather along the walls of these large dining rooms and just listen to the conversation of the interesting people at the table. And this woman, who is recognizable by most of them in the room, but rejected by them uh, because of uh, their view that she was not worthy, uh, came in and approached Jesus. I'm reading from Luke chapter 7, beginning with verse 36. Luke 7, verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head, and kissing his feet, and anointing them with the perfume. If you've ever been in an awkward situation in which something is happening, and you're seeing it visually, but you're embarrassed that you're even seeing it, uh, I personally want to avert my eyes. Uh, I can't 
watch a person embarrass themselves in front of other people. It makes me embarrassed. And so I bow my head and avert my eyes and try not even to look. But it seems as if what's happening here is so startling, no one can take their eyes off of her. Here is a woman, apparently of ill repute, a woman that they knew in the city to be a sinner, who has come to Jesus, apparently, to show her gratitude. It seems as if, since she brought an expensive vial of perfume, that she was intending to anoint him, probably on his head, uh, with this perfume, to express to him her appreciation. And yet, she doesn't even make it far enough. She makes it around the side of the room to where Jesus is reclining on his left side, his feet out away from the table, and she can only reach his feet before she falls apart emotionally. She begins to weep openly to the point where tears are running down his face. I won't name which of the three boys here today cried alligator tears as a kid, but one of those three when he was sad, could produce tears that would wet the whole front of his shirt. Truly, a lot of tears. And I picture this woman overcome with gratitude for Jesus' forgiveness of her, expressing to him her heart of her gratitude, wanting to give him her very best. This spikenard ointment uh, that was in this alabaster vial was extremely expensive. Uh, it was the kind of thing that you would not normally use. It was such an expensive thing that normally the, uh, the narrow neck was sealed at the top so that you wouldn't just take a little bit of the time and apply it, that you would have to literally break the neck of the vial. It was made from a root in India and imported into the Palestinian area. It'd be the kind of thing that you would buy as an investment and hold rather than something that you would apply on a daily basis. It would grow in value and you'd use it in a sense as a life savings. She is taking what's perhaps the most valuable thing she owns and brings it to our Lord, wishing to give to him an expression, both visible and aromatic, of how much she loves him and how much she appreciates his willingness to forgive her. But overcome by emotion, she's now at his feet, tears falling from her face, splashing on the dust on his feet. In their culture, as they walked through the dusty roads and sandals, their feet would become uh, so dirty that they would take their sandals off when they came into the house and a servant would normally wash their feet, and then they'd walk barefoot through the house. In California, we don't do that. We usually leave our shoes on when we walk in and out of the house. When we moved to Iowa, we were quite surprised when we invite students over to our house. Uh, they would all stop in the doorway and take their shoes off and, and move about in our house in, in their socks. And we were like, what are they doing? We ended up with entire piles of shoes at the, at the front door. It was basically not to track uh, wet snow or mud or dirt uh, throughout the house. 
the host has not been kind to his guest of honor because he's not had his feet washed, he's not received him with the embrace, with a kiss on the cheek or the forehead, he's not anointed his head with oil. And so this sinful woman is splashing Jesus' feet to making mud with her tears and is concerned about the mess that she's making and having no towel with which to wipe his feet, she lets down her hair and she begins to wipe his feet with her hair. Ladies can understand this better than we can as men. A woman's glory is her hair. I'm not even supposed to touch my wife's hair. <clears throat> and yet she is letting down her hair and using it to clean up the mess that she's making. She is humbling herself before him and expressing the tremendous love and gratitude that she is feeling for him at this point. I'm watching so far, but now she's kissing his feet. I'm turning away, hardly able to believe it. And then she breaks the neck of the alabaster vial of perfume and pours it out on his feet, pouring out her life savings before him. Simon the Pharisee mentally, in his mind, says to himself, I knew it. I knew it. This man is a fake. He thinks to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who's touching him and that she is a sinner. He imagines from his own point of view, as he would respond as a Pharisee, he would have nothing to do with sinners like this. He would help keep himself aloof, separated from her sin, thinking in some way he would become ceremonially defiled. Jesus is allowing this woman to touch him and is receiving her expression of love and gratitude. And Simon is saying he can't be a prophet or else he would not allow this to take place. Jesus supernaturally knows what Simon is thinking. And in verse 40, he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he says, say it, teacher. And much like Jesus regularly does, he expresses the lesson in the form of a parable. And he tells them a quick little story, so simple, so obvious, that even a child could give us the correct answer. He says, a moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Denarius was what a working man would earn in a single day. It was enough to feed himself, his wife, and his kids, but was not enough to provide anything beyond that. It was just subsistence living, but it was a day's wage. So these two individuals owe either 500 days' wages or 50 days' wages. One is 10 times the other, but they're both so astronomical. You can understand how if you got yourself into that kind of debt, you'd have difficulty getting out. Neither one was capable of repaying the moneylender. So as the story goes, 
the impossible happens, and the money lender forgives them both. And then Jesus asked Simon, so which of them, and listen to the way he words this, which of them will love him the more? We would have expected him to say, which of, him would be, which of them would be more grateful? But that's not the way he expresses it. He says, which of them will love him the more? Much like the students I work with, they're always expecting these trick questions and they're afraid to answer. And sometimes I'm just thinking like, the answer is so obvious. At least say Jesus or something like that. You know, just, just give me an answer. <clears throat> and Simon hedges his answer and says, well, I suppose the one whom he forgave the more. And Jesus says, you've judged correctly. Now, that wasn't so hard. And I wish I could draw some of my students out and say, like, my questions aren't that hard. Just, just take a wild guess. Come on, help me here. Interact with me a bit. Yes, you've judged correctly. And then Jesus turns and looks back at the woman. Now, remember, his head is towards the table. The woman is behind him. So when Jesus turns around, he's looking away from everybody else at the table, which means that everybody's eyes are now going to focus on the woman. Everyone's staring directly at her. Turning to the woman, he says to Simon, and I think that the visual here is very important. He's looking at the woman, so everyone will look at the woman, but he's speaking to Simon. He says, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water from my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. In fact, in the expression of the previous description, uh, it was as if she was kissing his feet incessantly. I grew up here in Southern California, and I'm, I'm of uh, English descent. My wife grew up in Latin America, in Bolivia, and she has told me since the time we met that I don't know how to greet people properly, that I am cold and stiff in the way in which I greet people. And she says, you have to warm up, you have to loosen up, you have to be willing to hug people. And if they're Latin, kiss them on the cheek. Well, you know, that's a little beyond me, but <laughs> I'm growing. I'm, I'm getting a little bit better in my expressions of affection. I think Simon did all this on purpose. I think he was a bad host to Jesus on purpose, because I think he was intending to try to discredit him in front of the other guests. I think he was trying to put him to shame. In fact, you can sense that in his brain as he's watching this woman and saying like, see, I knew it. If he were a prophet, he would have known what kind of woman this is and that he wouldn't dare let her touch him. Now Jesus is turning the tables on him and saying like, wait a second, when I came in, you didn't wash my feet. She's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss. In other words, no abrazo. Uh, but she's not ceased to kiss my feet. She was kissing his feet incessantly. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to her, her sins, which are many, 
have been forgiven. It appears, as the story is told, that Jesus and she must have had a previous meeting in which she had come to understand him as the promised Messiah, come to understand him as the Son of God, come to understand him as the person who can actually forgive sins. In fact, that's one of the problems the Pharisees had with Jesus, is he seemed to blaspheme by pronouncing people's sins forgiven, in which they would say, only God has the right to forgive sins. Who do you think you are? The answer is he thinks he's God. He is the Son of God, and he has the right to forgive sins. And he announces to Simon, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. And then the most important part of the story is given to us in the next phrase. When you read through the scripture and the author that you're reading expresses himself in a manner that causes tension within you, in which you say, wait a second, that makes me nervous. That's a clue to the interpretation of what is being said. Hone in on the parts that make you nervous or the parts that surprise you or the parts that you wouldn't have expected to be there. When he says, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much, you say, that must be the key to unlock this entire story. She loves a lot. Simon loves little. Do you remember the story told of the two debtors? Do you remember when he said, not which of them will be more grateful? He said, which of them will love him the more? I don't know if any of you guys work in banking. I don't know if any of you guys give out loans. But has anyone ever hugged you when the loan was over and repaid? Have they just thanked you? Thank you so much for giving me a loan. <laughs> Most of us are much more businesslike than that and probably don't have as much emotion wrapped up in the loan. But if you realized your life was ruined, you were about to be sent to prison until your family could pay back an insurmountable debt to release you from prison, you would probably hug the person who paid the debt on your behalf and let you go free. Hence, you will love him the more. And the huge problem with Simon is he has no love. Now, why is that? Because he does not know God. If we know God, if we have been recipients of God's love, then we have to love God and love people. Because the application here is to people. It's not by accident that an unlovely woman is the foil to point out Simon's lack of love. She's exactly the person that he would have nothing to do with, a person that he would never touch. My favorite story of Jesus is the story of the Good Samaritan, of a person who fell among robbers and was left for dead, and walking past the man, first of all, are two religious people 
who can't be bothered with that right now. It's a life and death situation, and they can't be bothered with that right now. I think of this homeless man on an interstate exit ramp protecting this woman, saying, stay in your car, lock the doors, I'll be right back. I'm going to get you some gasoline. He's caring for her even though he doesn't have to, even though it's not his responsibility, even though he's kind of a scary person. She said he was obviously homeless. And yet here's a homeless man, an ex-Marine, protecting her, caring for her, using up all the money that he could have spent on feeding himself to buy her gas to get her home. And it reverses the story to say to ourselves, we have to care about people. We have to love people. In the case of the Good Samaritan, we're going to have to touch people. And we're not going to worry if we're ceremonially unclean or inconvenienced. We're going to say people need to be touched. People who are in misery, people who are in sin, people who are in shame, people who are in grief need to be touched by us. And I'm preaching to myself first before I preach to anyone else. You can ask my wife. I'm not good at any of this. But it is true, and it is right, and it's what Jesus is teaching. Jesus is not afraid to eat with sinners. He's not afraid of his reputation. He's not afraid of getting himself dirty in any way. He's not afraid what other people think. He knows what's right, and he shows love where love is due. Here is a woman who knew she was a sinner, who knew she was guilty all along, who wanted forgiveness but had no means to be forgiven, just like the story of people who had a debt they could not pay. They had no means to rescue themselves from this situation. Some of you might be struggling in debt. You might be wallowing in debt to the point where you say, I'll never in my whole life ever be able to repay what I owe. Apply that feeling to what it would be like to carry sin in a means where you say, God will never be able to accept me. Because I don't deserve to be accepted. And yet you meet the Son of God, who is compassionate and is kind, who's accepting, and who's willing to bear your debt for you, pay your penalty for you, and minister to your need. Simon, here's a woman whose sins have been many, but are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. He takes it completely out of the monetary scheme of things and applies it to how we feel towards someone else. Applies it to the emotional desire for a relationship and says, if you're not aware of your sins, if you're self-righteous, if you grade yourself on the curve, and you'd be surprised how many students talk to me about how their grade needs to be adjusted and reason with me on the basis of effort, which 
I can't see personally, and saying, but I need a better grade. Isn't there something you could do? We could plead in such a way, and yet we come to understand it's our performance by which we've been evaluated. And if we can't perform well enough to be accepted, we will have to cast ourselves on grace and ask for a gift that is undeserved. And here is a woman who has been forgiven by grace, and now wants to say, I can't stand it any longer. I have to find him, and I have to thank him. She's gone home. She's found the perfume. She's heard where he's going to be, and she doesn't care whether she's going to embarrass herself. She doesn't care who's in the room. She doesn't care who will see her. She doesn't care what people will think. She just says, I have to say thank you. I have to say, I love you you. How many of us are much more like Simon than we are like her, who view that our list of sins was so much smaller than anyone else's that he barely had to forgive us at all? We're the kind of students that ace the exams, the kind of students that write beautiful papers, the kind of students that know we deserve A's. And we just sort of imagine, I'm one of those A students for God. And yet the point of the story is to say, whether it was 50 or 500 denarii, you're in debt and you cannot pay. And it causes us to say, I have to change my whole perspective on this. Simon is way more interested in passing judgment than in imagining what God's judgment is of him. So a student coming to me saying, I need a better grade, I could lose my scholarship. I could not be able to play the sport I'm in. I'm going home to mom this Thanksgiving, and she will ask what my grade is in your class. I need a better grade. Or could we flip that around and say, am I more interested in asking God, what is your view of me? Just like a student could ask the prof, tell me how I'm doing. Help me know how I can please you. What could I do better? What could I do better? And it will take grace, won't it? When Simon compares his own situation with hers, he sees what to him is an obvious sin. We're going to guess it's a sexual sin. Uh, most people guess that she must be a prostitute if she's known as a sinner in the town. And to Simon, sexual sin is unforgivable. Unforgivable. If he struggles with pride, he doesn't consider that bad at all. He doesn't consider pride a problem between him and God. And yet, if you look at what happened in the fall, whether you look at Lucifer or Eve or Adam, Lucifer wanted to be worshipped like the Most High. It was pride. Eve was tricked into believing that if she ate of the fruit, she would know what God knows. 
And when she enticed Adam to eat as well, to know the difference between good and evil, they didn't understand that they would know it experientially by actually being tainted as evil, rebellious people against God. Pride is one of our worst sins, if not the core of all of the rest of sin. Why is it that when we evaluate ourselves against other kinds of people or other kinds of sins, we grade ourselves on a curve and view ourselves as superior in some way in which we are not? Simon thought that his religious faith was something to be preserved and held and protected. And that's why Pharisees separated themselves from other people and lived aloof to preserve their interpretation of the scriptures. Jesus didn't think so much of preservation as penetration. Jesus thought of true religion as reaching out to others, which would mean he did what some people thought were scandalous things like eating with tax collectors. Tax collectors were their own people who had betrayed their own people by working for Rome to extort undue taxes from their own people, keeping a profit margin for themselves, serving Rome, profiting off of their own people. Now, why would Jesus eat with anyone like that? Like a doctor goes to the sick, Jesus goes to those who have need. Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners because he understood they were the ones that needed him. Why doesn't Jesus reject this woman's approach? John 6, 37 says, All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Then in front of everyone, in verse 48 of Luke 7, Jesus says, your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And their interpretation is correct at this point because he would have to be God himself in order to have the right to forgive sins. And that's exactly what Jesus is proving. Your sins have been forgiven. And so that there's no confusion for anyone in the room, he says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Her love for him, her desire to pour out the ointment on him was not what saved her. There was no work that she could possibly perform that could have released her from such a debt. If you could come up with an extra denarius and pay it towards your 50 or 500 denarius debt, you're still in debt. There's not a single work any one of us could do that could merit our salvation. We can't do enough to motivate God to forgive us. It is God himself who set his love upon us, who out of his love and his desire not to destroy us, mercifully holds back his wrath and reserves it 
for his own son who willingly took our place on the cross, died paying for our sins, paying our debt. Though he were rich for our sakes, he became poor. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. And he absorbed God's wrath towards sin, extinguishing it and satisfying God's requirements. And now he can pronounce, you're forgiven. Your faith has saved you. This faith is the willingness to accept Christ's payment on our behalf. What shocks me is at times when people will not accept a gift, even a gift that they should accept. Imagine this woman on that ramp at midnight saying, you're kind of sketchy. I'm not sure I'm going to be willing to hang out here and wait for you to come back and bring me gas. I I'm too scared. It's nerve-wracking in one sense to cast yourself on someone else and allow that person to help you. But if you cast yourself on the right person, if you place your faith in God, God is willing to give you freely the gift of salvation and forgive your sins. We can't read this passage without having it affect the way in which we worship. Because worship is the expression of our thankfulness, our gratitude to God. But it's much more than that. It's actually an expression of our love for God. And this is where, culturally, we tend to hold back and use extraordinary care that we don't come across in an offensive way by expressing just a little bit too much love in the way in which we worship Him. As I've said, I'm already admitting that I'm a fairly cold and stiff person in regards to welcoming other people, so you can imagine uh, that I find it comfortable in the breaking of bread among the brethren. Uh, it's my style of worship. But this passage reproves me in the sense that we approach God as sinners, forgiven sinners, but sinners. We don't approach God from the perspective of Simon as a self-righteous person. And some wonder, why do we keep going over our sins again every Sunday morning? Why do we rehearse those and bring them up again? And why do we go back to the cross again? And why are we mentioning his death again? Can we not get to his resurrection or his ascension or his place in heaven or his return for us? Why are we doing that? It's because he asked us to remember him in this way. But it causes us, and I, I view that this is actually reorienting to where we need to be to remind ourselves, much like this sinful woman, I come as a forgiven sinner expressing my love for Jesus' gracious act 
of dying in my place. You'll also know that she has a complete preoccupation with Jesus. She has tunnel vision. She is not focused on anyone else in the room. If you watch her in your mind's eye, she is looking at his feet. She is looking at his face. She is seeing no one else in the room. We are not here to perform for anyone else. We're not here to impress anyone else. We are here to meet God. And we are here to express our love to God. Though we meet corporately because it's a stimulus for us to meet corporately, and though we bless each other by hearing each other express our worship, someone else worshiping worships on behalf of the rest of us, but I'm not a participant unless I am lifting up my heart in worship. It has to be personal to me. I have to be one who's expressing my love. And therefore, without distraction, I must be preoccupied with Christ. So in one sense, as she sees no one else in the room, we, in one sense, though we're worshiping corporately, should have tunnel vision to say, I'm focused on Jesus. I'm hearing other people, but I'm focused on Jesus as I'm expressing my love to him. Notice she's come to give, not to receive. She's coming to say, I have a gift that's expressing my love to you. Some people say, I don't like that meaning because I don't get anything out of it, which is a completely strange expression for a person who says, that wasn't my intention. I didn't come to get, although I do in, in, in some sense, I have genuine, true, real fellowship with Christ. I meet him here. Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 10 that the reason why you can't go to the feasts where they're worshiping idols by eating meat offered to idols is because you'll actually have fellowship with demons. And he says, isn't that bread that we break a real fellowship with Christ? Are we not meeting Christ? Yes, we are. There's a genuine fellowship that comes. And then I realize, therefore, though I am in one sense receiving fellowship with Christ, that wasn't so much my intention. I've come to give a gift to him, as I see in the expression of this woman. It involves emotions. She's overcome by her emotions, uncontrollably. I'm Scottish. I have no emotions. I am deadpan emotionless. So it reproves me as I listen to Jesus accept her gift, including her emotion. If you're like me, who's too stiff, feel the love that the Lord has for you and let it come through you, reflecting back to him and be a little less afraid of being a little more emotional. Some people come and worship and they're completely silent. Did she say anything? I don't think a word of her is recorded 
in that interchange of anointing Jesus. Yet she said more than any of us can possibly say in the expression of what she did. It was all heart. It was all love. And more than just thanks, he keeps saying it was love. She loved me more. She's expressed to me how much she loves me. And that can be done silently. It doesn't even have to be done in words. And then finally, I would say, notice how her worship is not easily hindered. We could say, like, someone's coughing, there's a kid in the back, uh, uh, I'm hungry. Uh, we could have all kinds of means to, to say, I'm getting distracted. Nothing would hinder her. She was not on the invitation list. She had to sneak in. And yet, she has every right to be there, and Jesus welcomes her presence. Simon is upset that she's there, and Jesus loves it that she's there. It's as if nothing can hinder her. Nothing will get in her way. She will express her love to Jesus. And with that kind of determination, my hope is we will as well. Again, the words of Jesus. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. We need to get God's perspective as to how hard it was to forgive us. And we need to open our hearts to the love of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as to how much he loved us. And then we need to open our hearts again like a waterfall back and say, I love you with every ounce of my being. Will you pray with me? Father, we come before you humbled by the example of a woman whose name we don't even know. What an example of gratitude and love she has expressed to Jesus. How much she has taught us about ourselves and our need to express our love and our appreciation for you. Oh, Father, in many ways, we're way too much like Simon, afraid to get our hands dirty in a sense, afraid to be defiled, afraid to interact with the unlovely. But, Father, change our hearts. Help us to shape or help shape our hearts to be like Jesus Christ, we would ask. We pray these things in his name. Amen.